Hello my friends and welcome back to the part two of our two-part episode on West Mexico with Anthony DeLuca. It's been really great to get everyone's feedback on episode one and I'm really pleased to present this second half. In the last episode, we looked at West Mexico during the formative period up to the classic period. And in today's episode, we're going to be finishing up and moving all the way through the epiclassic in West Mexico. We're going to be talking about drought, political instability, and obsidian. And as always, Anthony has a lot of information to share with, and I'm so grateful, so grateful for everything that he's been able to share over these last couple of episodes. So let's dive on in. So far, we've talked about the different West Mexican cultures during mostly the pre-classic or formative period. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where the bulk of the bulk of the action happens, right? What yeah. I guess what happens towards the tail end of of the time period associated with these cultures? So the shaft tomb cultures, they all pretty much come to a close at the end of the classic, the West Mexican classic period, mm-hmm. which is about 500 AD. Um, and there's drought that hits northern Mesoamerica, and we see that um, in the Lake Magdalena Basin, there's a reduction in, in the lake level, but there's also another lake in Nayarit in which the kinds of diatomes in the lake change in which more drought-resistant diatomes are present in the water. Uh, so we know there's a drought. Um, there's also possibly political instability uh, because by 500 AD, people are not building Guachimontones anymore. They're not really building shaft tombs, or at least we don't have buildings and shaft tombs that are dated that late. Uh, so perhaps the Teuchitlan culture and the Kamala culture, Ixtlan del Rio, for whatever reason, they, they just don't have the power they used to have. And so what we start seeing in the Epiclassic is a total change in the archaeological record. And it's drastic and dramatic. There's, other than no shaft tombs and no guachimontones, people are just they're not living on classic period sites. They are, are building whole new sites in areas that had no occupation. They, mm. they, they want to distance themselves from what came before. And they're building these sunken patio platforms that are similar to the ones found in, in the classic period, the Hio culture in Guanajuato. Mm-hmm. Um, the best example people probably find is the uh, Palacio de Acomo in Okinawa in Jalisco. It sounds like the Japanese island, but it's, it's spelled <laughs> differently. It's Okinawa spelled O-C-O-N-A-H-U-A. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this little town west of Etzetlan uh, in Jalisco. And it has this big palace that wasn't destroyed because Okinawa was a tributary uh, settlement to Etzatlan and the Spanish set up shop in Etzatlan, so destroyed their their platform to make a church. Um, and that the the Palacio de Acomo is being excavated, and it's like a hundred meters on the side. It's very big, mm-hmm. and it dates to like six hundred. 
So only a century later, this political change happens and already they're back to building monumental architecture. And, and they stopped doing hollow and, and solid ceramic figurines. Instead we get uh, Mazapan gingerbread figurines, which have a rather wide distribution all the way from central Mexico to coastal West Mexico. We get um, pseudo-cloisonné pseudo vessels, which are fired vessels that they then add a clay cap to the outside and they carve a design out of it and then fill those spaces with unfired pigment. And it remains unfired, but they make codex style imagery using the, these techniques. And we have pseudo-cloisonné earlier, but they don't depict people. It's, they, they're doing more abstract designs on things like conch shells. Um, there's an, one example from Huitzilapa. So they're using this technique, but in a different way. Um, we get box-style tombs. They introduce prismatic blades, which I'd like to tell other Mesoamericans because it, it blows their mind that people in West Mexico weren't using prismatic blades, at least in Jalisco, until after 500. Right. And it, and it's, it makes a great diagnostic for doing survey. When you find a prismatic blade, you know at least it dates to the epi or post-classic period. Wow, yeah. And, and all this change... Um, Chris Beekman and Alexander Christensen think it's a result of migrants from the Bajio in Guanajuato fleeing drought and going to areas that they knew about elsewhere in Mesoamerica. So one group went southwest to, to the lakes region of West Mexico, and another group went southeast and set up shop like in Hidalgo and may have help found the Toltec culture in Hidalgo. Hmm. Um, and, and their argument, they have archaeological and linguistic evidence that they have uh, compiled to, to make their model and their argument. Um, but something's happening. And whether it's a complete takeover is uncertain, which I think is unlikely. I think more that these people came into the region and they inter they intermingled and the migrants were able to dominate uh, politically and culturally right. um, possibly because of instability as a result of the drought. Right. Yeah. And Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it sounds really uh, processualist a little, but it's also the evidence you know, it's based off the evidence we have and the sites that we've excavated, um, you know, just saying the result is, oh, it's just drought and there's no social factors because we just don't know yet. Um, right. And that's something that's we're always trying to assess and test every time we, we put a shovel in the ground. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's interesting too that during this these later years, you start to see iconography coming in from the more central Mexico side of things, yeah. right? You start to see like, um, you see Tlaloc and the Quetzalcoatl starting to come into West Mexico where previously we hadn't really seen them. 
Yeah, the the only deities anyone was comfortable in identifying in West Mexico was the old fire god, because it's an old man carrying a jar on his back, mm-hmm. and that's pretty recognizable. But other than that, we weren't really able to identify any deities. And then in the that be classic, you get Tlaloc incense burners, and at sites like El Chanal and Colima, they're they're carving Tlaloc faces in, in stone blocks for their stairs. You get feathered serpent imagery appearing. And so there's this more this introduction of those those deities and those icono- iconographic elements, they are present in Guanajuato. Just at during the classic, just for whatever reason, Jalisco Nayarit and Colima decided not decided not to adopt those deities or those deities weren't forced upon them because they had their own beliefs. Right. Um, so it's nearby, but there's nothing separating like Guanajuato from us. So there's no reason that transmission couldn't have happened. It just didn't for social and cultural reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but then with the Epi Classic, you do get... Um, this this cult of the flower pin, prince Shochipili mm-hmm. that uh, John Paul and Michael Mathewitz have argued for the Aztatlan coastal Nayarit culture. Aztatlan culture, you set up all these sites along the coasts and inward, and they're trading with the, the U.S. Southwest, and they're trading inland towards um, Oaxaca and Puebla. Because uh, John Pohl, he's examined a number of these codex vessels from the Aztatlan culture, and they're repeating um, mythological scenes that he finds in later post-classic codices. Right. And their argument is that perhaps, perhaps during this period, the Mishtek are are trying to set up alliances with other trade partners and they're they're marrying people from West Mexico to secure to secure trade because Aztatlan culture ends up becoming a huge cotton producer during the Epi Classic um, along the coast. There's there's so many spindle whorls that farmers find tilling their fields that they collect them like Pokemon cards and trade with each other. Oh wow! It's just an insane, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but that that would then, make sense, right? For them, yeah. I mean, you have this power vacuum with Teotihuacan gone that, mm-hmm. that's controlling so much trade that, that you know, the Mishchek sought out other partners. And, and I know Michael Mathewitz, he has another paper on the use of cacao. So the cacao is becoming more important in, in West Mexico. And before that, we're not sure if they even consumed cacao. Oh yeah, so they're that's becoming more central Mexican. Yeah, well, yeah. they're they're the balls for the the ball game. We're not sure if they were rubber or not um, during the late formative and classic. Wagon uh, proposed that maybe uh, they're like the balls for for ulama, and they're just leather wrapped stones. Um, we don't we don't have a marsh. I think that we could find preserved rubber balls, but. Um, you know, despite that, 
that they, they were using something. But in the Epi Classic, they stopped playing the ball game. Um, and that we don't know why. And they don't really play the ball game in the post-classic period either. And yeah, this it is interesting how, you know, West Mexico seems to have been, I don't want to say isolated because they were trading, but they had mm -hmm. such a unique style and a unique um, way of being that was different from the rest of Mesoamerica. And then here in this epiclassic, post-classic period, you see, you see those those differences start to kind of melt away and they become more, more pan Mesoamerican, I guess you could say. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot of West Mexico. Um, what would you say is the most fascinating part of West Mexican culture for you? I would say it's the core elements that they do share with the rest of Mesoamerica that I find interesting. Because on the surface, you look at West Mexico and it's a little overwhelming and, and first reaction is, oh, it's so different. How can it, how is it ever considered Mesoamerica? Right. When you kind of sit down and you look at it and you dig at it a little bit and you realize it's, it's really the same. It's just another, another brand. It's another flavor. They just, they're on a different branch of the telephone game where they got the same message, but it just went a different route. And that's what I find interesting in, in just trying to figure out why, why are the, why are, why are some things different and some things similar? You know, was it by choice? Was it by, uh, was it forced upon them? Just how did, they become who they became, I guess. Right. Um, yeah, especially especially since there were so many other strong forces on the playing field. You know, I, I find it very interesting that West Mexico, one way or another, even you know, it's it shared those those root characteristics. Um, but like you said, I think I think using the the analogy of you know a different branch of the telephone game is is yeah. a really good way of talking about it. You know, they they got the same message, but for some reason their interpretation of it was different or their execution and, of it was different. And I, I kind of, I see them as a rather independent group of people. They, they did their own thing and didn't really care what other people thought. Right. They weren't, they, they focused upon them, on themselves and what they did and what they could do rather than drawing upon other outside groups, you know, they, they, mm -hmm. they're not drawing upon Teotihuacan to legitimize their power. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, there's very little contact with Teotihuacan, um, despite, despite the resources the region offers. And whether that's on purpose or not, you know, we're not certain. As far as we know, maybe Teotihuacan thought it was too far away to try to make any inroads. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps West Mexico chose to obscure what they had available so people wouldn't be interested in the area. Because mm -hmm. it surprises people when I tell them that we have like the third richest source of like obsidian in the world, that the La Joyita, or La, La Joya source is what it's called. Um, we have so much obsidian that at least up until 
the Epi Classic when they started bringing prismatic blade technology, which is a way to, to maximize usage and reduce waste, they were making expedient tools uh, mm. in flakes. They weren't really making formal tools. There's just so much obsidian debitage. They just knock a flake off and they use it and then they throw it away. And mm. it just boggles people's minds. So I get excited when I find a chirp uh, tool. And I did a season in Belize with my advisor uh, two summers ago, and everyone was getting excited when they found obsidian because they have chert the same, same way we have uh, obsidian. It's just everywhere. Who cares? Right. Um, so this, this huge source, and, and it's more than just black obsidian. We have gray, dark green, dark blue, light blue, brown. There's black with silver speckles, black with gold speckles, black with white, black with red. I think there's some more. We have this huge range of colors, especially the blues and greens that would have been prized. But even then, like they don't really use the, those colors uh, the same way other Mesoamericans would have used it. Most of the tools that they do make are black, uh, like a dark, dark gray, or a brown. And I've only seen one tool that was like a turquoise obsidian color. And that was oh, interesting. it. So, so that association with the color, it's not there. But it could have been a source of wealth if they exported it, but they didn't. They chose not to or didn't let anyone obtain it. Right. And that is very strange. For whatever reason. But I think, yeah, I think, I think that does reinforce that statement, right, that they seem to be very independent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of continues all the way to the post-classic with the, uh, the Perpetua because they were more focused on what they could produce, what they created, they, they didn't look to import a lot of the exotics, or at least the same de degree as the Aztecs did, uh, to legitimize their wealth or power. It was their ceramics, their bronze, their textiles, because they were great, and they were better than others mm -hmm. kind of mentality. And so maybe that, that goes further back in the past. And, and that may explain the ebb and flow of, of contact and, and the flow of information with the rest of Mesoamerica. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Cool. Well, we've talked about a ton of aspects yeah. of West Mexico. It's been really spectacular. Um, and thank you so much, Tony, for taking the time to come out and talk to this. There's no way I could have ever talked about this in as much depth and with with that much expertise. No, that's all right. Um, that's no problem. I like talking about it as, as much as it might annoy my classmates, but I don't know. I, I could just keep talking. There's, there's just more, there's just more I could talk about. I'd just do a whole season on West Mexico and have right? people be tired of it. <laughs> just get the whole gang together and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, this was fun. This was great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, you too. <laughs> Thanks. I'll talk to you soon, Tony.
All right. Bye, Catherine. Bye. Well, my friends, that may be it for this segment on West Mexico, but I promise it will not be the last time that we talk about West Mexico here on the podcast. There's definitely a lot more that we can talk about and a lot more scholars that we can bring onto the show. In the meantime, keep an eye out for future episodes. Next week, we're going to be going back to the Maya area, which is my particular area of expertise, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you all some more information about painting, writing, and art in the Maya area and in Mesoamerica in general. Until then, have a fantastic week, and I will talk to you soon.